All right. Just before we begin, I just want to read a scripture out of Isaiah chapter 61. The reason I want to do that, I, I just feel God's going to do something along these lines this morning. And the Bible says that the word of God has the power to do what, um, what it says it's going to do. So when you, when you proclaim the word of God, it actually isn't just empty words. It goes out from you with power to do that task. So Isaiah 61 in verse 3, the second part of the verse, says that God will give us a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. And in the King James or the New King James Version, it says uh, he'll give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I believe God is going to give the garment of praise to people particularly to people that are struggling with depression this morning, struggling with a spirit of heaviness, God's going to give a garment of praise that you can put on and see breakthrough. All right, so the topic today is everything we have is a gift from God. Everything we have is a gift from God, and we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, just turn to chapter 4. Apparently a good sermon should have a introduction, a three points and a conclusion. This sermon has one point. So you can decide if it's good or bad. Um, anyway, the more I read the book of 1 Corinthians, the more similarities I'm seeing with this church and the modern day church. So the church in Corinth and the modern day church. It's quite amazing because uh, 2,000 years ago there was this church in Corinth and they're facing a lot of the similar struggles and issues that we face in the church today. And not much, not much has changed in 2,000 years. Uh, the church in Corinth was divided, and the divisions were boasting about following certain leaders. And I don't know if you've noticed that today, that there are divisions in the church uh, with Christians, and a lot of the time it's because certain Christians are following certain leaders, agree with what they're saying, and don't agree with what other leaders are saying. And so we have allegiances to certain preachers. I know that doesn't apply to any of us, but uh, we may not say it verbally, but uh, there is an underlying, sometimes there's an underlying thing of us uh, saying that we follow such and such a preacher. And we might listen to their messages online, read their books, which is all okay, nothing wrong with that, until... They preach something that differs from what your local church preaches. And then you come to a fork in the road. And then you've got to decide, who am I going with? My online pastor or my physical pastor? And you have a choice to make. And uh, because the, the, the critical thing is that we can't follow a leader we disagree with. Amos 3.3 talks about how can two walk together unless they're in agreement. And so uh, this is what's causing the division in Corinth. Uh, some people are saying, well, I follow Paul. But the thing is, Paul wasn't leading the church. Other people were saying, I follow Peter. But he wasn't leading the church in Corinth either. And so essentially, they are following their online pastors. If there was an internet back then, they would be following their online pastor, Paul or Peter, who were in another nation. And uh, so groups of believers are divided against each other in Corinth. 
And what I've noticed also is that if there's just a little bit of pride in our hearts, uh, the next thing that happens is that we fall into the trap of thinking that we have arrived. So we have our factions, but then if pride is in our hearts, we think our faction is actually better than the other faction and the other group. And this is what happened in Corinth. They were saying that, well, they've arrived because they follow Peter and his doctrine is the right one. And the other guys were saying, no, 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 no. We've arrived because we follow Apollos. And man, he's a brilliant teacher. He's way better than Peter. And he teaches some stuff that's actually right and Peter teaches some stuff that's actually wrong. Problem is, neither people, neither leader was present in Corinth when they were arguing about this. They'd all come and gone. And so groups of Corinthian believers thought that they had a superior doctrine to the other groups. And unfortunately, this still happens today. And if we don't guard our hearts against it, we can easily fall into the very same trap that the Corinthian church fell into. We can fall into the sin of pride and we can join a faction ourselves. And the thing is today it's even easier to do because we've got the internet and no one knows who I browse on the internet. No one knows whose sermons I listen to. No one knows what books I'm reading. Amen? No one knows. So I could be a follower of someone who teaches that baptism is by sprinkling, and that's perfectly biblical, and secretly in my heart I have a division against this local church because we don't preach that. We preach baptism by immersion. But because I follow my online pastor who does preach that sprinkling is okay, I'm divided. I've had a fork in the road and I've gone down a path of following somebody online, okay? And it's very easy to do that today. And this is essentially what Paul is addressing in Corinth. But we're going to pick up in, in the very next verse, straight after this, uh, chapter 4 and verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. It says this, For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, then why boast as though it were not a gift? Paul tells them that everything that they have is a gift from God. Why are they boasting about it? If it's a gift, why are you boasting like you earned it? You were just given it. And then in verse 8 he says, You think you already have everything you need. You think... You are already rich. You've begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. So these believers in Corinth had fallen into this trap of division and pride and factions and superior thinking, following leaders, making uh, one doctrine above another kind of thing. They've forgotten that everything they have is a gift from God. Even the air we breathe is a gift from God. God freely gave it. None of us guaranteed 
have ever prayed a prayer asking God for air. Ever. And yet, without it, none of us would survive. God freely gave air to all of us. It's a gift. None of us earned it. Nobody earned it. (laughs) Because believers and non-believers receive the same amount of air as everyone else. Okay? Everything we have is a gift from God. And the Corinthians had forgotten this truth. Secondly, they they thought that they'd arrived. Paul says in verse 8, you think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. You think you're reigning already. (laughs) They'd forgotten. They were looking down on each other. And saying, look at us. Look at who we follow. Look at how successful we are. We're reigning with Jesus. See, when we, when we forget that everything we have is a gift from God, who we hang around becomes really important to us. And what we have becomes really important to us. Because we've qualified to hang with these people. Or we've qualified to receive these things. So it means I've actually achieved something. I get to hang out with this crowd. Whoa, they let me in their circle. That's something, you know. Not everything you have is a gift from God. The people around you, they're a gift from God. The family you're born in, it's a gift from God. Not one of us chose the nation we were born in. You know, when, when Joel and I were in Cambodia, one of the things that just hit me, I thought, you know what? I didn't choose to be born where I was born. I could have been born anywhere in the world. I could have been born into a family with no money. I could have been born in a palace. None of us choose where we're born. It's all a gift from God. But when pride gets into our heart, oh, I hang around these people. I'm a part of this group. Or I have this stuff. Look at all the stuff I've got. Praise God, I'm blessed. See, people love to be a part of something that looks successful. If our sporting team does well on the weekend, we like to talk about it. If they don't do well, we keep quiet. Other people like to talk about it to us. When I was at school, I wanted to be friends with the cool kids. I wanted to be in that group. And I wasn't. (laughs) But I wanted to be. People want to work for a successful company. feels good to say, I work for such and such a company. <laughs> they don't just let anybody in here. Yeah? You've got to be a somebody to work for this company. <laughs> wow, people say, that company's huge. You work for that company? Yeah, I work for that company. <laughs> we want to go to a church that looks successful. Wow, your church has 10,000 members. It's amazing. Yes, that's the church I'm in. Feels good. (laughs) Well, if you count the angels here, I'm sure there's more more than 10,000 here today. You see, if there's pride involved, it can be a trap from the enemy. And the thing is, it feels good. Pride feels good. Because it satisfies our flesh. Oh, hey, I'm part of something amazing. I'm in the in crowd. 
feels good. So what are we going to do? Because the problem is, when you serve God, and when you, when you are patient, and when you walk in obedience, God blesses you. And so, you look successful in life. Because God's blessing actually overtakes you. And you can't turn around and say, no, no, I don't want to have that. Because I don't want to be, feel like I'm somebody. The problem is the blessing of God just overflows in our life. And so people look at us and go, wow, you're so successful. Look at the job you have. Look at the church you're a part of. So the church of 10,000 isn't wrong. God has, has given them those people. Praise God for that. The problem comes is when we begin to put pride in, that, in, in, in having 10,000 people. The problem comes when we forget that everything is a gift from God and we think we've earned it. I remember years ago asking a church leader how his church became so large and it was in the thousands. I was hoping to get like some secret like formula from this guy. And he said, it's all because of the grace of God. That's it. I'm like, yeah, but what did you do? Like, you know. It's all because of the grace of God. That's why the church is where it is today. I walked away. I was a bit disappointed. I was like, I want to ask someone else. (laughs) But he understood this principle. Everything we have is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Everything we have is a gift from God. You're getting the point. The single point. Everything we have is a gift from God. So I want to take us to another passage to show us a person who understood that everything we have is a gift from God. That person is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. I believe that having this attitude will protect us from pride. It will protect us from division. It will protect us from arrogance. This attitude will help us walk together in unity and serve God alongside one another without competition. And I also believe that when we understand this truth, it's part of how God gives us the garment of praise. We go, everything I have is a gift from God. How can I not be thankful? How can I not praise God? And you put that garment on and despair lifts. It goes because we're living in thankfulness. I'm thanking God. I might only have $10 in the bank, but thank you, Lord, for those $10. Thank you it's not $9. Thank you that I've got two legs to walk on, that the floor is solid underneath my feet, and I'm not standing over water, shark-infested water. (laughs) Thank you that we live in this nation. We are blessed. We are an absolutely blessed people. Anyway. If you have your Bibles, just turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 22 says, Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem, and they went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Aenon 
near Salem because there was plenty of water there. So let me just stop there and just make a quick comment. Why would you need plenty of water to baptize people? Yep, and what else? So that they can be sprinkled or immersed? Immersed. You don't need plenty of water to sprinkle. The reason John was there was he needed a lot of water to baptize a lot of people by immersion. If you... If, you, if I need to baptize a thousand people by sprinkling, I could have a little spray gun and just... Easy. But if you've got to immerse people, you need a lot of water. You need enough water to put them down under and bring them up out of the water. In fact, when Jesus was baptized, it says, when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. You can't come up out of the water unless you go down under the water first. And if Jesus did it and he's our model, it's the only way. Okay. Anyway, where were we? (laughs) Uh, Verse 23, okay. Because there was plenty of water there. So, So John is baptizing people, okay. And John, in, in, in the other parts, it says, basically the whole of Judea came to John to be baptized. So you, what, if we had to look at that, we'd say, man, that guy has a successful ministry. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people going to him, getting baptized. Even though he's preaching a fire and brimstone method, method even though he's eating locusts, even though he's wearing camel skins, wasn't the fashion of the day, somehow people are drawn and they're getting baptized in their thousands by John. Okay, So the disciples of John are looking at this going, man, this is like amazing. This is revival. We're in the will of God. John, he's an amazing preacher. He's doing a wonderful thing. Praise God, I'm hanging around this guy. That's what they were thinking. Verse 25, a debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing or baptism. Okay? So John's disciples came to him, this is John, and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, he's also baptizing people. Competition. <laughs> and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. Oh, John, what's going on? Thousands of people were coming to you, and now there's another guy baptizing, and everyone's leaving us and going to him. What's happening? We're not in the cool crowd anymore. We're not in the group that looks successful. We're in the group that looks like the ship's going under. I don't, want, I don't know if I want to be around you anymore. I'm thinking, God has called me to the other side of the river. That's what happens. And this is what the disciples are facing. (laughs) They're struggling with this thing of where to look. They have their eyes on what's going on around them in the physical world. They're looking at a man. They're looking at the numbers. They're seeing thousands and thousands and they think everything's okay but the minute they don't see the thousands what's going on what's wrong 
They felt confident because of the numbers. They felt confident because of who they were hanging around. They felt confident they were doing God's will. Now our lives might be different to John. Maybe we're not baptizing thousands of people. Maybe we're making thousands of dollars. Maybe we're leading people to Jesus. Maybe you're a very skilled, talented person in a specific area. Maybe you, whatever it is. It could be music, it could be sewing, it could be leading, it could be working on the computer, I don't know, whatever it is. You have amazing abilities. Maybe you've just bought a new home, a new car, got a new job. Maybe you've met your dream husband or wife. <laughs> Maybe you've married them. <laughs> Maybe you've had the most beautiful child or children. Maybe you've got lots of friends. Maybe you look at your life and you think it's actually pretty good. But what do we do when things aren't going well? It's easy to serve God when everything's rosy and everything's going well. But what about when things don't go well? What do we do then? Do we have a theology that can cope with valleys? Going through a valley. When some of the Bible says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. What do we do? When things are taken away, what do we do when we start losing friends? What do we do when our health deteriorates? What do we do when our job goes, when our money goes, when our popularity goes, when people unfriend us on Facebook? What do we do? Do we have a theology that can cope with things as drastic as that? (laughs) See, these disciples, they couldn't cope. They saw the crowds leaving John and going to Jesus. And they came to John and they said, what's going on? What's happened, John? Aren't you serving God anymore? Has the Lord moved on and left you behind? If that's the case, we want to move. We want to jump ship. I really wish that I could stand here and say that I've always focused on God and never wavered when things have gone wrong in my life. But I can't. (laughs) There have been many times in my life when I've asked God, what is going on? When Jen and I took over the leadership role from Tom and Sandra, who planted this church, the church was about 200 people. And in six months, it was 120. (laughs) Praise the Lord, eh? (laughs) What growth! (laughs) Literally every week, someone would phone, I'm leaving the church. Every week. You know, it was like, oh, hey, good to hear from you. And I'm thinking, I wonder if this is another one. (laughs) Yep, another one. Gone, 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 gone. And you wonder, what is going on? You think, did I hear God? (laughs) Just before the handover, I landed in hospital and almost died. And I remember asking God, what is going on? I'm trying to be in your will, and now you let this happen. You know, that's our thought. I've prayed for people who have been healed, and I've prayed for people who haven't been healed. I know Christians 
who have prayed for people who have been healed and who have prayed for people and they've died. I know people. In fact, there's people like that in the room. What do you do when that happens? I've led people to the Lord. They've been coming to church for months and months and months. And as soon as they've given their life to the the Lord, I never see them again. Never once. What do you do? Jeez, God, I'm serving you. I'm trying to do your will, but there's just nothing happening. What do we do when things don't go to plan? Well, John's attitude in all of this is amazing. Because if you looked at John and his ministry, you'd basically go, if you were a church growth expert, you'd have come to John and you said, listen, mate, you have to change the way you're preaching. There's fire and brimstone. No wonder no one's leaving you. There's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, loving the people, and you're shouting at them. <laughs> you're telling them they're a brood of vipers. You know, repent. You're angry with them. So you need to change. And this whole thing, wearing camel skins, it's not in. You've got to look the part. Stop eating locusts. Start eating. Your breath stinks, man. No wonder guys are going over the river. That's how we do it. We try and fix the situation. And if we look through carnal eyes at our lives when things go wrong, we do the same thing. What's going wrong? Why are the people leaving? What am I doing wrong? Because I, I didn't have a theology to cope when I went through a valley. So what is John's attitude? People are leaving him and they're flocking to Jesus. John 3 and verse 27 says this, John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. There it is again. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. John understood he had a role to play. He's not the Messiah. He's not the center of attention. Someone is coming who is the center of attention. John's role was to prepare the way for the person who is going to take center stage. He says, I'm only here to prepare the way for him. Verse 29. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the best man is simply glad to stand with him. And here is vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. I mean, how's this? The people are deserting John and he's filled with joy. Praise God. Jesus is being glorified. Is that our attitude? When, when we serve, we come out and we put out the tea and coffee. No one thanks us. In fact, someone comes up, you didn't quite do that right. My kettle was cold. <laughs> There's no sugar. What's going on here? The full cream milk is gone, and I only have full cream milk, you know. And we, we do that, and we don't get thanks, but then what do we do? Do we walk away? Oh, oh, or we're going, praise God. Jesus was here. Someone came in. There was a visitor that came, and they had a cup of coffee, and they got saved, or they stayed in the church, or whatever. Jesus got the glory. Is that why we do what we do? Why we set out the chairs, why the musos practice, why they sing, why I preach, why we do anything, why we put banners up. 
It's all so that Jesus can get the glory. And at the end of the day, we can be full of joy. We can live lives of joy when we live like that. But when we're worried about, am I in the right group? Have I got the right stuff? Oh, someone, Auntie Mary there got more stuff than I did. Why is she more blessed than me? What have I done wrong? Everything we have is a gift from God. (laughs) What did you do wrong? Nothing. It's just God gave her more of a gift than you. But praise God, he gave you something. (laughs) Amen. John says, therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. John understood that everything we have is a gift from God. He understood that. Whether he had thousands or whether he had ten people, it's a gift from God. John understood his calling was to serve Jesus. I actually think it's really significant that Jesus chose 12 disciples. And I know it's the same number as the tribes of Israel. I know there's links to all of that stuff. But I also think Jesus could have had 5,000 disciples, but he chose 12. He chose to be a captain of 10, not a captain of thousands. And yet so many of us, because we have a worldly mindset, we get into this thinking of, unless I'm a captain of thousands, I'm not a success. Well, then Jesus wasn't a success. Because the thousands left him. (laughs) And even the 12 he had deserted him. (laughs) But Jesus, this incredible leader that we have, chose to be a captain of 10. Changed the world like that. In fact, someone asked Billy Graham, said, if you had to do your life all over again, what would you do differently? He said, I'd take 12 people and I would spend all my time just discipling them. Wow. He preached to two, I think he preached to 250 million. I don't know how many people made a decision for Jesus. But to look at that and to say, for him to say, I'd actually just take 12 people and I'd pour my life into them. That's amazing. It shows the power of discipleship. Shows that the kingdom of God is nothing like the kingdom of earth. John understood his calling was to serve Jesus. John understood that Jesus should be the center of attention, not him. It wasn't about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And if I get overlooked, if I don't get thanked because I swept the car park or whatever, it's okay. It's about Jesus. (laughs) I'm not saying don't encourage one another. It is important to encourage each other. John John understood that Jesus should become greater and greater and he should become less and less. John understood that loving God meant putting God first. And loving people meant putting people first. So when someone else has a success in the Lord, we praise God for that. And we say, praise the Lord. Not, oh, why wasn't that me? Why didn't I get that job? 
Why didn't I get that raise? How come that person has got three salary increases in the last six months and I've been six years and got nothing? Praise God. Everything we have is a gift from God. In fact, the more I look at Jesus, the greater he becomes in my eyes. I was thinking the other day of how Jesus laid off all his divine attributes. Think of this. Jesus comes to earth as a human, like you and I. He's left all his divine things behind, and he's come as a human. Yes, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But look at what he does. He walked on water as a human. Just let the penny drop. You can hear it's got a long way to go down. (laughs) People are like, "Mm, I don't know. As a human. Filled with the Spirit, but as a human. He raised the dead. He overcame every temptation. As a human. He fed 5,000. He took on the sin of all mankind and he died on the cross. Unbelievable. He is literally the champion of all champions. There's, there's no one like him that's ever been born. You think of the greatest leader ever. Leaders in history. There's nothing compared to Jesus. There's literally no angel, no human, no creature greater than Jesus. Anywhere in the universe. And I can understand why the Father has given him the name that's above every other name. Because he deserves it. He truly does. No one, None of us deserve it, but Jesus does. Let me close with this. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, because of this, to fix our eyes on Jesus. How are we going to endure in this race of life when we have weights that, that are put on us to hinder us, when sin trips us up? How are we going to make sure that we finish the race with endurance that God has marked out for us? The writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on that champion, Jesus. You look at him, you won't go wrong. You take your eyes off of him and start worrying about what group am I part of? How much stuff have I got? Am I doing the right thing or the wrong thing? Why is so-and-so getting blessed more than me? Everything we have is a gift from God. So all I can do is be thankful. Look at Jesus and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm just going to read four verses. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 12, and verse 13. What do we do when things don't go to plan? Maybe you've lost your job. I've been there. Maybe you've lost your health. I've also been there. Maybe you look like you're failing trying to serve God. I've been there. When it looks like all hope is gone, how do we pick ourselves up and keep running with endurance? Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. That means from time to time, we're going to have weight put on us. And what are we to do? Strip it off in Jesus. 
especially the sin that so easily trips us up. How do we deal with that? Confess it to God and repent of it. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Not a sprint, it's an endurance race. It's about finishing, not about the speed you run at. We do this. How do we do it? Verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. That basically means he starts and he finishes our faith. He initiates it and he perfects it. So don't just come to Jesus to start your faith. Stay with Jesus so that he can finish it. He can finish the job. He can finish it. He can bring it to maturity. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So take a new grip with your tired hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. My encouragement to you today is fix your eyes on Jesus. Understand that everything you have in your life, everything is a gift from God. Thank the Lord for it. Every day, come to God in thankfulness. And I'm telling you, by doing that, you will put on the garment of praise. There will be no room for the spirit of despair in your life. There will be no room to despair. Because when you realize, my goodness, even the air I breathe is from God. Thank you, Lord. (gasps) Another breath. Praise the Lord, there's oxygen. I mean, none of us walk around checking, is there enough oxygen in this room? We just believe there will be enough. We just believe God will be faithful. And He's not going to supply some people and not supply others. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my job. Thank you for this church. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the truth. When we live like that, we are going to be like John where he's saying, I'm, my joy is made complete in what I see happening to Jesus. Praise God, the church down the road, they're booming. Praise God, these guys saw some guys saved. When you live like that, you'll be happy every day. But when you go, oh, something went wrong and you know I see these guys are successful why wasn't it me you know we're going to live in despair we're going to live in depression but this understanding that everything we have is a gift from God it changes everything now you're no longer performing now you're no longer striving you're just thanking God living out of a thankfulness not to get but to thank And fixing our eyes on Jesus. What a privilege, eh? What a champion. I mean, literally, the more I look at Jesus, it's it's just mind-blowing. He is so great, so wonderful. You know, it's it it he blows me away all the time when I just think of what he did, what he went through, the the attack that the devil put on him, and he was victorious. Wow. It's just amazing. When you see Jesus like that, you can follow him. It's so easy to follow him. It's so easy to thank him. Everything we have is a gift from God. Let's stand. We're going to pray.